Yo, welcome back, people. Uh, I hope you're coping well in this COVID-19 situation. We seem to be on the up. So hopefully things will gradually start getting back to normal. In the meantime, I will keep getting the podcasts out. And these podcasts will be and are enabled by Westway Nissan. Westway Nissan, you know who they are. They're the UK's largest Nissan dealership. They've got dealerships all over the UK, including the home of the British Army, down in Aldershot. Lovely Aldershot and its amazing, diverse range of people, including, obviously, many military and ex-military. I've had some cracking nights out down there. Westway Nissan, at the moment, I've got a limited number of dealerships open, uh, but they are providing essential work to key workers and also can provide essential work servicing etc for you you just need to book it but book by appointment you can do that on the website westwaynissan.co.uk they're doing a bunch of stuff actually for the covid19 response at the moment they've uh, they support an initiative to provide free mobile phone power packs to frontline workers they've even had employees deploy with team rubicon uk in response to the COVID-19 situation. So Westway have had at least one employee that I know of deploy and support key workers, NHS, and other critical services across the UK. Thank you to Westway for everything they're doing. They also like to provide up to a 20% discount for new or used vehicles when you buy with them if you're ex-military or you can be serving. You're still eligible, eligible for it. They do new and used vehicles. They do commercial and private type vehicles. So if it's a personal need or a business need, they can accommodate you. You can also at the moment, you can buy online. You can buy used cars online for the comfort of your own home. There is that option at the moment if you can't get into a dealership or the dealership near you isn't open. So like I said, the website is, I said that weird then, website. The website is westwaynissan.co.uk and they're on social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, Westway Nissan. Thank you to those guys for sponsoring the podcast and everything you're doing. Very much appreciated. Also sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes, the not-for-profit organisation who fundraise for military charities by organising events throughout the year um, to bring people together, have a great time and fundraise in the process. They've been going since 2009 after forming in the wake of uh, Private Joe Whitaker's death, who who's a paratrooper who was sadly killed in Afghanistan. And since forming, they've raised over 100, they're near on 110, might be just over 110,000 pounds now, actually. I forget the exact figure. There's a huge amount of money when you consider they run one, two, maybe three events a year. So it's not a huge amount of events because they're a small team, but nevertheless, they've managed to raise a significant amount of money that's gone to benefit my ex-colleagues, maybe your ex-colleagues if you're ex-military listening now, um, and many others around the UK. So thank you for their support. Rugby for Heroes have got three events, had three events planned this year. Well, they still got them planned. They just haven't revised the dates. It's two supper clubs and a beer and gin festival. The beer and gin festival and one of the supper clubs will take place in Leventon Spa. The beer and gin festival will be at Old Leventonians RFC. And the supper club will be at the Tame Hair restaurant in, in the centre of Leventon Spa. Both amazing venues with lovely, lovely people there. And I, I'm sure the rugby club won't mind me saying this, but the latter, the Tame Hair, which is a restaurant, does have exceedingly good food. The food at the rugby club's good, but it's rugby club food. 
the restaurant as restaurant food. So we'll see you at the Beer and Drink Festival when you're drinking beers and not really caring about the food. You know, get a burger down your neck. And then I'll see you at the supper club as well if you can get along to that whenever the new day gets announced. And you can enjoy exceedingly good food by Johnny and his team there. Uh, rugby for Heroes, yeah, they're on social media. Rugby, the, the, the tag is at rugby number four heroes, rugby for heroes on um, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give them a follow and just keep up to date when when the next events are getting released or the next dates for the events are getting released. Revised dates, I should say. They're also uh, they've also got a website. You can get along and have a look at that. Rugby F O R heroes.org rugbyforheroes.org thank you to mike and all of the team at rugby heroes your support is very much appreciated my guest today is my good friend doug hook doug and i served together in three paris served on tours of afghanistan and he was part of three paris sniper platoon upon leaving he's, he's become a, a writer a journalist a photographer i should say an accomplished writer journalist photographer he spent several years in china covering different stories out there doing different pieces of work and documentaries and uh, exhibitions. And he also spent a significant amount of time in Venezuela, covering the troubles out there. And he is now in Springfield, Massachusetts, in the USA, covering predominantly a lot of uh, political work. He's part of Mass Live, a news outlet out there. I should say also, he's had some of his work in the past um, featured in Time magazine. He's, He's done really well for himself upon leaving. And it was a pleasure to catch up with him. We had a really good chat. I really enjoyed this. Guarantee you, you are going to enjoy it too. It's always a pleasure speaking to people who just ex-military and who end up in the most, not obscure, but unexpected unexpected roles and places. Now, 10 years ago, what were we on? 20, yeah, 10, 11 years ago, I wouldn't have thought I'd be doing a podcast. I would, certainly wouldn't have thought Doug would be in Springfield, Massachusetts, working as a journalist and a photographer. He's done amazingly well. Listen to him chat about it. Uh, this is the HR Podcast. I am Hugh Keir and my guest is Douglas Hook. Enjoy. Come on. Doug, fuck it. What you saying before you start recording? Uh, yeah, watch the um, uh, Nigel Farage interview you did. Uh, really interesting, mate. How was that? How was that interviewing him? He's an interesting character. <sighs> yeah. Um, My dad you know, loves him. It was, it was all right, mate. I think, you know, because I've done so many now, it, it, I, I think as soon as... I was a little bit nervous beforehand, but I think as soon as I sit down and, like, we're recording, and like as soon as I said the first word or the guest as, I'm into oh podcast mode again, and I'm fine with it. I don't know how yeah. I'm quite, quite like, but uh, no, that was alright. It was he was it was challenging because it was much shorter than I'm normally like, and so it was thirty thirty five minutes. But initially, so he said at the start, like off air. I've got 15 minutes. I was like, oh my god, that to me, that's <laughs> like, how did you get into it? How did you get into a conversation? How do you just, how do you just get into the flow of conversation and that? I was like, nah. I thought, right, yeah. I'll just walk in. <laughs> I'll just keep asking <laughs> questions. And he was fine, mate. He enjoyed it, I think. 
I think, I mean, so I've interviewed a couple of politicians over here and they always give you, I think they're, they're aiming off that you're going to take longer than you actually are going to take in an interview. So they'll say 15 minutes. What they actually mean is half an hour or or 45 minutes. It's just so if they abruptly say, look, you're taking too long, they don't seem like a arsehole. <laughs> what's it like? Um, what's it like out there, Doug? Uh, in, have you, in fact, I don't know if you've got a reference point, actually. Have you interviewed British politicians as well as American? Is there a difference so, between, between the two? <clears throat> well, just with the work I'm doing at the moment, so I work for a news organisation, Mass Live, and Mass Live is focus solely on Massachusetts. So I'm living in a city called Springfield, which is in Western Massachusetts. We do, um, I'm trying to think if I've, it's really, the, the only people I've really spoken to are, are predominantly um, Massachusetts politicians or, or people from Massachusetts. And my, yes. my beat is, yeah, sorry, it's early in the morning over here. So uh, <laughs> not, not on the beer. I would be uh, having a beer with you, obviously. Mm. Yeah, so it's mostly, uh, mostly, um, yeah, Massachusetts uh, politicians um, like Elizabeth Warren, for example, or um, Kennedy, uh, uh, Joe Kennedy, who's going for one of the Senate seats against Ed Markey at the moment. Um, grandson of grandson of JFK. So I, yeah, so I, I don't don't quote me on this, but he's the he's not the grandson. He's uh, I think he's Robert Kennedy's grandson. So he's journalist, the, journalists like you should know better than to say when being recorded. Don't quote me on this. Yeah, <laughs> I should know this. I think he's. I, I'm pretty sure he's Robert Kennedy's <laughs> grandson. Um, but he's. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, that was my um, claim to fame. I think uh, meeting uh, meeting Kennedy. I mean, it's it's just it's like the American royalty, isn't it? The Kennedys. They're just they're, they're, they're those sort of people. I mean, you probably met them. That they just draw people in. Like people are just besotted i suppose by the the history of their family and, and all the rest of it it's, so where's it what's what trajectory is he on at the minute polit politically so he's uh, at the moment um i've been so i'm on furlough at the moment so I'm, i feel a little out of touch even after a couple of days things are happening so quickly at the moment last time i heard he's uh, going for senate seat against uh, a senator here in massachusetts ed markey um who's the the current senator over in boston uh, or here in the US, but uh, yeah, he's he's doing his campaign run at the moment, so he's sort of all over the place, which is which is interesting. When did you interview him then? A couple of times, actually. I mean, he's oh. so Western Massachusetts. One of the so a bit of history about Massachusetts. One of the the issues um, people in Western Massachusetts feel is that all the focus is on Boston. So there's the politicians aren't spending enough time coming over to the Western part. It's really not much, much over it, to be quite honest with you. Um, so he came over a couple of times to uh, go to food banks and just draw attention to some of the problems. This was before the pandemic hit. Um, and he's been over, I, I believe he's been over a couple of times after, um, sort of making the rounds again. He's on this sort of election campaign at the moment. But uh, that was cool. I mean, another, and, and on the subject of Farage, sorry, another... Um, Another claim to fame I have is obviously I went up to uh, New Hampshire for the Trump rally. And obviously Nigel Farage and Donald Trump are muckers, I believe. That was exciting. And it's weird meeting Trump supporters. So I had in my head that Trump supporters would be these Second Amendment nuts, like crazy individuals. Because you see that on the news all the time, don't you? These pro-life lunatics. But they're, I mean, 
really nice, genuinely nice guys. I mean, this is my assumption of them. And I'm not saying people that are pro-life or pro-Second Amendment are, are terrible people. But there is that connotation. And when you actually meet them in person, it's fascinating. Um, and it's, it's nice to be exposed to that. Uh, from my point of view, which is the nice thing about being a journalist. You get to expose yourself to people you otherwise would be slightly biased against, I assume. Yeah, mate. Uh, that, do you know what? And that that was one, funny enough, that was one of the deciding factors. Not one of the deciding factors. It's one of the important reasons I was really happy to have Farage on, for example. One of the, one of the reasons I'm really happy to have people like Ben Griffin, ben Griffin on in the past. Because they hold... Certainly, Ben Griffin holds very, very uh, opposite views in certain things to what I do, and he was too para. Ben, do you know who Ben Griffin is? Rings a bell, but no, no, not, not he's, entirely. He's, he's ex too para. Then he went to Hereford. He got into Hereford. Um, long story short, he 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 left the military. Became dis after a tour in Iraq with Hereford. Became disillusioned with the war in Iraq. Disillusioned with the war on terror. And and founded, founded or was the first UK coordinator for vet, an organisation called Veterans for Peace, which is an organisation that they don't they're not pacifists, believe it or not, but they 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 believe in a purely defence only foreign policy and a, a, a much smaller military than what we got now. Because uh, our military is pretty damn small at the moment. I mean, compared yeah. to uh, and he holds some. Views on what British this is a British soldier mind on what British soldiers can and do get away with against the law in in theatres of war, which is which I don't do not agree with him. And it's on the podcast. We don't. It's a good conversation. But sorry, yeah. the, the point I make the point I'm making is he went that Trump rally. Um, he met people and they weren't what you expected. In the same way that what people expect Farage to be like because or what what he's really like as a person because of. He was, you know, the pioneer for Brexit. Um, what Ben Griffin's like, because he's a he's part of a like what's perceived as a passive pacifist organisation, Veterans of Peace. They aren't like yeah. that. You've got, mate, you've got to speak to people with opposing views to understand the score and to get a level-headed approach. The problem is, is that the media they will they will get the most newsworthy, um, fascinating, controversial character or sub-organisation or like sub-label of the greater movement and focus on them. Like Labour supporters, like you, the thing over here is like you know when Corbyn is in power, fucking Labour supporters, you know, far, um, far, far left, flipping, progressive, extremist. Oh, yeah, you know, you, you know the score, but that's not that's not what they're all like. In the same way, the well, it's, it's interesting, and and as you as you point out, not everyone just be. So one thing that I, I've never really understood. So um, say for example, you're a conservative or you're a Labour supporter. Why it doesn't define Doug, every. Why, but Doug, why label yourself? The, exactly. This, yeah. Why it the, doesn't define who you are. Like you. Okay. Over here, you might be a Republican. Doesn't necessarily mean you completely agree with the Second Amendment, for example. I mean, this. It, we, I feel society at the moment we're so polarized. If if you like Trump, you're an asshole. If you like Bernie Sanders, you're some liberal wanker. Like, it, 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 there's no middle ground. So a, a weird a weird thing that happened. So uh, last year, there was a, a, a parade in Boston, uh, the Straight Pride Parade. 
and it was. I heard of this. I heard of yeah. this. I say sorry. I miss. I misspeak. It's not a far right. They're just slightly right of centre politically, uh, and their, their their whole idea was just why is there all this gay pride when uh, we should feel proud to be a straight person? I mean, it's completely uh, ill-advised to, to to go to these rallies. I mean, it's the people obviously don't fully understand what the pride movement's all about, but it was interesting, and they they were interesting characters. I wanted to go and because there were in Boston, Massachusetts as uh, a state is a very blue state in the sense it's a quite a liberal state overall. And having this straight pride parade in the capital in Boston, uh, the capital of Massachusetts, was ri- risky in the sense that there were going to be counter protesters. So I was covering this event, but I wanted to get the opposite point of view. I'd already interviewed all of the organizers of this parade pride, um, uh, pride parade. And I wanted to go and interview Antifa. And I know it's not a a set organization. It's a group of people that come together to protest. But I, it wasn't really, they were Antifa, but there was um, a meeting in a synagogue in Boston. And they were talking, and I went to this meeting. I found it on Facebook. I went to this meeting just to try and speak to some people on record to have a balanced uh, article. Two seconds. Yeah. Sorry, two seconds. So just explain for people listening or watching what Antifa is. It's not as publicly known over here as, as it is in America. Oh, right. Okay, so Antifa, they're basically an anti-fascist group. Like they, they, they rail against anything that they deem as oppressive, any sort of individuals that they see as um, maybe too far right. So, for example, Nigel Farage, uh, Antifa had a few demonstrations against Nigel Farage and UKIP. There was a time a few years ago, and again, I've been out of the UK for a while, but UKIP was seen as this far-right political movement, which obviously isn't. It's just uh, sort of further right than the Conservatives. Um, So they're a group of usually very young uh, people and very young being college students or university students that gather together, they're where all black, they'll wear face masks so they can't be recognized on camera and they'll basically try and disrupt events that are being held and... Wankers they are absolute wankers Well, I mean they have a right to express their opinion. Um, the problem I find is that they don't like anyone else having an opinion that they don't agree with. I hope no Antifa are watching this otherwise I'm going to get, get trolled uh, to, to pieces But I went to the synagogue because I wanted to speak to them. I wanted to get their point of view and find out why they think this 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 rally, this uh, parade in Boston was so dangerous, why this couldn't go ahead, why they needed to protest this. So I went to the synagogue and I at the beginning, they'd already started. I arrived late. So I just walked in and sat down. I didn't identify myself as a reporter or a journalist because they were talking and I didn't want to disrupt them. So um, they started going into uh, first aid like they were expecting trouble they, they were expecting to get beaten up or beat somebody up because they were doing first aid lessons and, and sops and uh, on what happens if one of you goes down etc etc anyway it got to the point where they started getting a little paranoid because there were a bunch of new faces there and like right is anyone a supporter of trump or part of the media and i was like yeah yeah i'm a, I'm a reporter and they were like get out <laughs> i was like why 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 do you want me to go? So they took me aside and they they started telling me that if I was a responsible reporter, 
I wouldn't have spoken to the the straight pride organizers. I would have just come to them and just got their opinion on on why this event shouldn't happen. And the fact the that madness. I actually, it's, the it's madness, insane. the madness of that opinion. This is yeah. so. Just a clarify, right? It was me that called them wankers, not you. I just completely <laughs> said right. But the reason I say that, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. They're entitled to an opinion. Right, yeah, and yeah. I don't say that like flippantly, like oh, you're entitled to your opinion. Everyone's entitled. I mean it. You're entitled to your fucking opinion. You know, um, the thing is, it goes back to the labelling thing as well, right? And this is this is the unfortunate impact that mainstream politics and over in the UK, especially the division that like Brexit caused, um, uh, and anyway, before that, the put yourself into this team or that team. Same in America. The problem with that is right is that it all of a sudden becomes a very it becomes very difficult for someone who's in that I am I am red and say I'm I'm living. Yeah. It becomes very challenging for them to even consider the possibility of changing their mind on a topic, right? I'm just saying a topic because like as you alluded to just now, just because you're a Labour supporter doesn't mean you you support everything that is in their manifesto, for example. Now a really interesting thing with that is, like, with Corbyn, I say interesting because I'm ex-military, I can't stand Corbyn because just because of the historical yeah. um, uh, connections to terrorist groups and, and all that, right? But I like to look at things. I try and just look at everything like objectively and take everyone's opinion and try and think, okay, I'm not going to completely shut off Labour or people who support Labour because I don't like Corbyn. It's not the way things work. I need to learn. Anyway, I found myself agreeing with some of the stuff that was in Corbyn's manifesto pre-last election. Some of the stuff. I agree with that, right? But other stuff, I flipping didn't. But I thought, I, 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 it made me really happy with myself. I think, oh, okay. I'm like, I can be uh, agree agree with something there, even though I'm, I'm so repulsed by the guy. It's still the yeah. same. Now, the problem is, for people who don't hold the same uh, like point of view as you or I, the openness, they see themselves as red. They've always got to be red. They completely shut themselves off to blue or or the Republicans or Democrats, whichever side they're sitting on. And so they never get the they never get the opposing view. And they get so uh, tunnel vision on what they believe. Yeah. It just becomes complete ignorance to the, the absolute comedy that Antifa, that opinion, the anti, anti-fascist, right? Anti-fascist movement is what they're supposed to be. And yet... Um, won't let a journalist, you know, I won't let a journalist engage and they'll be part of it. Hang on a minute. Yeah. It's mental. Or? Absolutely mental. But, I mean, but, but that, that is, sorry, but that is the reason I brought that up is because Antifa predominantly, the generation below us, the ones most impacted, I think, are mo- most impacted in terms of um, mental development. I mean that because the, the whole, whole Brexit thing was happening when they were maybe 10, 15 years old, mm. you know. And then 10 years later, they're 20, 25, 10 years later, 20, 25 years old. They've been brought up in an environment where you're either this team or you're this team and you don't listen to that team. You only listen to what we say. And if you talk to the other team, you're a fucking traitor. And that's where these antifas come from. That's what they believe. That's what they think. The reality is they're closing themselves off to all the people they want to to influence and try and change their minds. They've shut themselves completely off from it. How do you influence people if if you're refusing to engage with them? You can't change people's minds by not talking to them. I think I read somewhere, and I think it's, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I, I think people 
I might not. What's the the, the saying? I, I might not agree with what you're saying, but I, I defend your right to say it. I mean, it's that sort of mentality. But I think on on that, and I don't want to speak too much to it because I'm not an expert on generational gaps. But I think younger people, and even our generation, don't really have a Second World War. We don't have a First World War. We don't have anything to to rally behind a common cause. So at the moment that people are trying to find common causes in Jeremy Corbyn or Donald Trump or, or something they can use to be part of a tribe. And I think that's I think that's the problem. We maybe not a prize. Good. We're in peacetime. We don't have any apart from now, I suppose, with the pandemic, anything to all bring us together and, and rally behind like they did in, in the 1930s and 40s with the Second World War. The Germans were bad and. And we were good. There was no, um, there was no, uh, no rallying call for, for people to join together. And one point on uh, on how polarized and how ridiculous this gets. So I was in uh, Venezuela, and if you're not familiar, I'm sure you are. But for, for those listening, I was in Venezuela in uh, the beginning of 2019, which is when the Essentially, the people of Venezuela, particularly in the capital in Caracas, were trying to overthrow essentially a, a dictator, the, a Nicolas Maduro, who was given power from um, a, it's a, it's a long-standing socialist government, and essentially he just took power. There was no democratic voting of him in, and the and the people uh, since he's been in power, the the country has really gone into to poverty, and people are literally starving, and there's a, a lot of social issues in Venezuela. So the <clears throat> a chap called Juan Guaido emerged as the leader of the opposition party and a, a, a democratic movement. And people in Venezuela, majority uh, of these people rallied behind him. Now, internationally, Donald Trump, so Nicolas Maduro is a socialist government. Juan Guaido is more of a very a centrist, maybe slightly center-right political party. Because um, Nicolas Maduro is a socialist, I think you remember um, Jeremy Corbyn came out in support of him. Trump came out in support of Juan Guaido. In fact, Juan Guaido came to, went to the White House relatively recently. The people, uh, the majority of people in Venezuela that I, I met, including uh, those in some of the slums in Caracas, are fully supporting Juan Guaido. You go to the rallies and it was very free and open. People are on the streets rallying behind this uh, charismatic leader of the opposition party to the government. In contrast, the Nicolas Maduro rallies, they were essentially forcing people to go to the rallies. To So it looks like Nicolas Maduro, the current president, has a lot of support with the people. America backed Juan Guaido there was an overwhelming movement in the States and in Europe to say that, uh, that, that Maduro, this dictator who'd been imp uh, imprisoning his population, there'd been um, lethal riots in the country. There was an overwhelming movement in Europe and in America when I was over there actually seeing this on the ground that we should just leave it alone. We should, we should let the Venezuelans do what the Venezuelans do. And the, of course, that's that's a, a valid point. But the Venezuelan people, almost every single person I spoke to said that the only way that they were going to get their democratic freedoms back 
wasn't necessary to have troops on the ground in Venezuela, but just international support from world leaders. And it was just interesting for me that because Trump came out in support of an uh, of the center right wing politician who was fighting for for freedoms and democracy, there was an overwhelming because people didn't like Trump. They didn't they didn't care about the issues in Venezuela. They just if Trump supports it, it must be a bad thing. And I'm not the biggest fan of Trump, but I don't think everything he does is awful. Like he, he's done a lot of great things before the pandemic. There was a record low unemployment in the US. I mean, economically speaking, he's been great for the country. There's a few things he does and says that uh, are strange, to say the least, for a, for a head of state. But yeah, I mean, it, I, I just it's it's interesting to see how polarized people are getting uh, about these sort of issues. And and Nigel Farage is a good example. In fact, I've had many discussions with my dad. My dad loves Nigel Farage. I didn't particularly like him in the past, and there have been many discussions about him as well. But it's just taking a step back, and I think looking uh, at at what's going on. But the the, the polarization is self perpetuating. Uh, in 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 America over here, I can't speak for anywhere else because I don't really understand how it, how it is everywhere else. But especially, particularly for American for you, it's self perpetuating because it's like the now it it the people need it like like for the reasons you were saying they it's like a, a, a uh, an avenue to vent on something at the end of the day or lunchtime it takes you away from your job part like you say part of a tribe. Be that online, or be that you know in real life. I go and meet up with my uh, my labour friends, you know, uh, <laughs> my conservative friends after work, and I have my old knees up. Two you know, separate groups, and, uh, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it's self it's perpetuating because the media need it too, because the the way the only way the media is surviving now i think or will survive now which is why we're seeing the way it's going the, which is why we're seeing the quality of news media deteriorate have seen it deteriorate, the quality of the output deteriorate over time i'm not talking about your work doug obviously i'm talking about the the quality of it right is because um because the, with technology's advanced social media and everything else paper sales gone down the pan um people watching tv traditional tv and news channels is going down the pan, plummeted. So in order to try and maintain that um, attention on the media from the public, they have to do the same thing to get people's attention on fucking Facebook. And that is outrage. That is divide people into camps. That is, And it's not been a conscious effort by the media. It's just been a slow... It's almost as if that the, the, that the evolution of the way news outlets and journalists and presenters are communicating to the public the evolution of the way of the way they're doing that to the public and the way they've changed the way the the tactics in which they're doing it has evolved far quicker than the regulating bodies than mm. the regulating bodies have um i mean you can look at the bbc for example could go and put an article out today completely well, but let's take a, a more likely example the fucking daily mail they go and put an article out today and it would, or it's a another could put an article out in the Daily Mail today, and say, say it's online, and it says some X, Y, or Z celebrity or person did this, that, or the other, said this, that, or the other. And they could put out complete fabrication, complete bullshit, and they and they know probably it's bullshit, came from an unverified source, whatever. Right. However, this, 
the uh, the attention that generates for them, the revenue that generates through ad clicks, get on the website, publicity, can shares, more um, saturation across social media for the Daily Mail is huge. What's the re- what's the repercussion going to be uh, if if it's reported to Ofcom or whoever it sh- whoever it is that does that? Then it's a uh, you need to apologize publicly and take that article down. They apologize publicly and take the article down. They still benefit. It's already happened. In yeah. a massive way. It well, should be financial punishments. Massive financial punishments. When you talk about um, deterioration of the media, so the Daily Mail, I agree. I mean, it's it's a rag. I mean, it's it's a tabloid, and that's what tabloids do. The sun, the, the, the mirror, the... Um, news of the world when that existed. I mean, it's always been like that with tabloids. The broadsheets, Telegraph, Time, Guardian, uh, the, the serious uh, newspapers that are reporting the news. It depends. So, okay, an interesting thing I found out. So, I used to be a big fan of CNN. I used to love CNN because it was like the the American version of the BBC. It would just give the news. There was they'd at least try to be objective. Now. You've got Fox News, which represents the Republican Party. You've got CNN. There is, n- I really, I'd be hard pushed to tell you one time an anchor at CNN had said one nice thing about the president. And again, like I don't, I don't think he's in, in the best president this country's ever had. He's probably not the worst, but it, I mean, it's not news. It's 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 a reality show now. Um, so uh, in that I sense, say, I do agree. Well, yeah. No, when no. I when I'm referring to the quality, when I'm referring to the quality, uh, and I'll I'll be more specific. Sorry. Across across, it, let's say ten ten, let's say fifteen years ago, okay, of all of the all of in in one twenty four hour period of all of the of all of the news that was published in whatever manner to the general public in one twenty four hour period fifteen twenty years ago, uh, compared to now, the, the, now much less much more. Much less a percentage of that media that's published now in this 24-hour period compared to 15 years ago. Much less of it is of substance. Much less of it is of relevance. Much more of it is um, that's controversial. Let's do a story about that, mate. It's fucking bollocks, right? And unfortunately, it, it impacts all of the media outlets now, mate. Two days ago, right? And I'm going to mention the BBC. I'm not slating the BBC. Like, the BBC have got good journalists. They've got good presenters. They've also got bad journalists, bad presenters. And it, and and But the majority of the online stuff doesn't come from any of those people. It's fucking different. A lot of it's automatically generated. Same for Skype. Same for any other media outlet, right? The BBC did an article three, three days ago, four days ago. And I'm convinced a lot of stuff like this is done purely for the headline because I know the headline will get shared and get impact, right? That is it. This fucking article was, bearing in mind we're in what week are we in now of lockdown? Week eight or week nine of lockdown, right? So car dealerships and travel has been, the car dealerships are closed. You can't buy a car at the minute because all the dealerships are closed, right? In the UK. And people are hardly traveling because people are fucking locked down. The BBC did an article and the headline was uh, something along the lines of car industry, car industry profits plummet over the last six weeks. No fucking shit. What are you talking about? How is that? How is that news? I don't understand it. What is the point of that? What is the point of that? What is the point of it? I rant. Well, I hate it. I hate it. The minute. I hate it. <laughs> so I mean, I, okay. So I don't. I. I, I can. I can't speak to that article uh, too much because I didn't read it. So maybe you can send that to me. But I mean, personally, it's. It would be interesting to know how the car industry is doing. I've done similar articles about industry here and. In, 
get off, get off this fucking interview, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> but I've done similar articles. So one one of the gun shops, uh, gun shops, Governor Baker uh, closed down all the gun shops in Massachusetts. Majority of states in, in the United States, um, they're gun shops have been deemed an essential service and an essential service because it's their constitutional right to bear arms over here. So there's a little bit of gray area there where the gun shops should be uh, considered essential, but uh, the the courts here in Massachusetts just deemed them essential service and it was unconstitutional essentially for Governor Baker, the, 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 the Governor Baker, Charlie Baker is the Massachusetts governor, um, to close them down. So a couple of weeks prior I was actually going around speaking to gun shop owners and their their shops. uh, I mean, if they were closed a a few more weeks, they they would have to close down. Part of the reason I'm sure the courts have reopened the gun shops here in Massachusetts is because journalists are writing about the effects these closures are having on businesses. So, again, I haven't read the, the article on car dealerships in the UK. It might be stating the obvious, but there might be, again, some information in there that could benefit maybe some of those dealerships. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You've changed that. You've changed in three parrot. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, I think mate, it was more it. I think it was more it was more on the timing of it and when it yeah. and when it was going out. It's like what, what are you talking I mean there's a there's a lot of press over here, Doug, which is Things have changed over the last few weeks. It swung to, at the start of the COVID-19 lockdown, I thought, okay, this might be the thing. <coughs> might be the thing. That common, like common, uh, common suffering, that war brings Bring people, people together. together. Yeah. It's the yeah. day-to-day, mate. Do you know what I mean? Bring people together. Get rid of that division that happened with Brexit. Get just co- get rid of the, the fucking Labour and Conservative. Just come back. You can talk to your mate across the road who's Conservative. You can talk to your mate across the road who voted Leave, you know? To bring people back together, and I, I was really hopeful for that. And I, at the same time, I'd, I'd read Tribe. Have you read Tribe? No. By Sebastian. Oh, mate! Got to read I that should... book. Okay. Got to read find? that book. Sebastian Younger. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I'll have to. It, it, I'll have to it, it, and it would. It's got a. Yeah, definitely. It's not a long book, so you'd be all right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mate, read it. I, read it. It's it's about it's basically it's, it's a study on people tribe and tribalism. Okay. Yeah. Uh, broadly, but it, it Sebastian Younger spent a lot of time with um, embedded with um, military troops. He's American, American troops, and it's and it, it, that's where he gets his his the the. It's basically the books a, a bunch of different articles he, he wrote this over the, the years. He's a journalist. This is Restrepo. Um, Director. That's him, Tim mate, Heathering. Read, yeah, yeah. yeah, read Tribe. I'm telling you, mate. It's what I wish I read it years ago. Anyway, so, um, and I got into that. Why did I got into that? Tribes, I think, sort of tribalism and, and polarization. Oh, you can talk. To, yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I've lost the train of thought. Well, Tim Heatherington actually. Um, so when I was studying photography, Tim Heatherington started his career. So the Restrepo, the the movie that won that Oscar uh, in the. Coringal Valley was it with the Americans? The Coringal Valley. I've never seen, seen it. You should watch it. It's really good. So Sebastian Younger and Tim Hetherington. Tim Hetherington was a, a, a still photography photojournalist. Sebastian Younger is obviously mostly video journalism. Um, but Tim Hetherington did a, a really interesting book called Infidel, uh, a photo book. And in this book, there's the the sleeping soldiers. 
So he went into, <laughs> creepy, he went in and photographed <laughs> American soldiers as they're sleeping. But the, the whole point of that was, um, and you'll know this, obviously, 90, I felt, well, maybe 80, 90% of Afghan were sitting around waiting for something to happen. And then there's that 10% where it's just kinetic. It's just mental. But uh, he really wanted to highlight that, that, that I suppose war isn't just about the running around and, and firing weapons. It's A lot of it's just sitting in a fob waiting to, to go out on patrol or waiting to stag on. It's really fascinating. Infidel, uh, the, the book is called. Yeah, it depends on the unit, doesn't it? I suppose. Fucking hell, yeah. mate. I wouldn't mind them sitting around time when we were... When we were... <laughs> Maybe, yeah, maybe not as I, right. but they were just sagging on top of a, a, a mountain, but it was, it's good. It's really interesting. It's really I love to watch it. I love to, I love to watch yeah. it. I, love to watch I it. can't believe you haven't watched it. It's mate, really I, I got to th- I have to, I struggle, mate, to read or watch a book, uh, anything on Afghan, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, no, fair yeah, fair enough. Why, why do you want I to? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm afraid of, I think I'm afraid, do you know what, I'm afraid of reading something that's bullshit. And get pissed off, or I'm afraid of. I don't know what. I don't know. I just. I. I. It, I think it's because nothing written about. It's the same with the three power books that have been written. I've never. I've never read any of them, because uh, they're never going to be perfect. Mm. Really. And it, to me, that. I mean, same as you. Those. Those tours. They were like. They were so significant an impact on my life, that. I wouldn't want to read something that isn't perfect about about it, which isn't. It isn't it's so, put, the only the only book I have read about it is um, No Way Out by Adam Adam Jowett, the one okay. the book. Of, yeah, and I wasn't going to read it. Um, I wasn't going to read it, and my my he's dead now. But Max uh, Max Arthur, the military, you know, you know of Max Arthur, yeah, yeah, the military uh, military historian author. Um, of course, you know, because obviously Luke was, Luke was good mates with him. Um, but it was Max actually texted me and said, have you, read, have you read Adam's book? And I said, no, I can't. I said the same thing. I can't. Yeah. Stuff. And he said, well, you might want to give it a read. Right. I picked it up, started reading it, and I did not put it down. Put it what down. I did it, mate. I did it almost in one sitting. Brilliant book. Brilliant book. So, particularly 2006. And I think in one of your first podcasts, you and Jared spoke about this a bit. I forget. I've forgotten a fuck ton of what we did. I, I forget. Well, so mate. I when we meet up, like meeting up with you or meeting up with the blokes back in in the UK, someone like will start telling a story. I'm like, fucking hell, that's mental. You were there. I just—it's completely out of my head. Um, there was this one. So there was this one time. I so Stuart Tootle, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Tootle, wrote a book of uh, 2006 tour. I'm in that book, but the the scene that I'm in, I don't remember. It was when we got back to uh, to uh, the hospital. Yeah, I can't I can't remember what it's called. But it's when, uh, so we got hit in Sangin and I'd literally just joined the battalion. And I, I, I really wanted to, straight from depot, straight out to Sangin. Um, first day on the ground, I got shrapnel in my shoulder, had to get Kazi backed out. And it's the scene where he talks about it when I'm back at the at, uh, at Bastion. And I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting there, uh, Luke McCulloch's being taken into the hospital. I'm just sitting there waiting to get seen by the doctors or nurses. Him and uh, Uncle John come over, uh, and I'm desperately keen to get back out to, to my unit, to the C Company. 
So I'm, I've got this shrapnel in my shoulder. I'm waving my arm around saying, no, no, I'm fine. Like, it's only it's <laughs> they're sending me back out. There. Don't remember a bloody thing about this. The only thing I remember is in the hospital, after I had all the bits removed, um, they gave me this Hawaiian shirt to wear because there was nothing else. I'd, all my kit was back in Sangin. And I remember um, uh, some Major Hardy, Uncle John, coming in and just giving me shit for wearing a Hawaiian shirt. That was it. Oh, I also have a recollection of coming out because they give, gave me morphine to, to go into the operation. I don't remember this, but the Royal Irish that were casually back with me um, were telling me that when I came out, when I became conscious again, and I was still very high on morphine, I was following all the nurses around like a, a little lap dog, just, just drooling, still high on the, the drugs they gave me for the operation, uh, which was obviously embarrassing. Um, but yeah, no, a lot of what happened, uh, I think you and Jared spoke about it in one of your beginning podcasts. A lot of what happened just don't have any recollection of at all. Yeah, I found that, mate. When I was, when I, I got out in 2011 and then I went in, I, I went and worked in the Middle East for two, uh, five, five, four, four years. And I, it was loads of time. The jobs I was doing, it's like it's just a lot of shift work towards the last couple of years where you'd be like managing a site but it'd be two of you and you do 12 hours on other. so you had a lot of time thinking time and I decided I wanted to write a book I didn't know how or what I just I thought oh, this would be good to put this into words because I'll forget it one day I'll put, put it down and I don't know what I wanted to do but I I I, I couldn't remember any of like the specifics and like the, the all the little the little story but I, I would occasionally sort of pop in my head yeah like, well, occasionally someone popped my head randomly, randomly. Go fucking hell! I forgot it even happened. And I started writing these down. Like, like I used to have a, an A4 piece of paper in my pocket. And when someone popped in my head, I go, "Jesus, I forgot about that happened." Or if someone mentioned something in the conversation, like what happened to you, you remember yeah. something? So I write that down. To, I've got his list now of all these these little anecdotes. Sounds quite for that therapeutic. Book. Yeah, mate. Yeah. yeah. Well, mate, this is therapeutic. But look, the best, the best, the most, my most enjoyable. Like my podcast day is my, fa- my favorite day because I, I yeah. get to chat, just chat with people. I don't like socializing normally, right? I fucking not the most social of people. But on your, it's I think I'm chatting to people I've chosen that I want to chat to. I'm learning. It's just an experience, you know. It's cool. And the best ones are where I've got one of the blokes on I know that we serve like yourself, you know, yeah. like Jared and like fucking. Um, Jared's funny. Has he? I haven't spoken to him in ages. Is he still living on a boat? No, he sold it. He's getting married, mate. Oh, anyway, different conversation. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, he's good. Yeah, he's good. But no, so I, I write write these things down. But I don't know why you forget those. I think. Do you know what I think it is, mate? Because there's so, so much. No, yeah. no, no. But some things you forget. They're not traumatic. There were so many memorable things that at the time seemed completely ordinary. Yeah. Completely ordinary, Doug. So you don't think at the time, oh my God, what the, that was the craziest story ever. I can remember that one. Because probably 10 minutes later, something mental's going to happen again. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, uh, it's fucking, it's I, I think that's why you need other people to bring him up and then laugh your tits <laughs> off for 20 minutes or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, like you say, it's, it's always nice meeting up with the, the blokes back home, uh, the, the occasions I am back in the UK, because it's been years since I, last time I was back, I met up with you at that port cellar in London. Uh, with my mum, yeah. uh, which was nice, um, and and that was it. Uh, I, I rarely get, get managed to get back. I saw Luke briefly, um, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's difficult. Or uh, you were in Syria, and I, I see a, <laughs> I, I imagine I see a bloke across the front line. 
So I, we spoke about this the, the other day. Oh, um, yeah. Careful, so yeah. I, Go on. Yes, of course. Yeah. But I was, um, I, I forget the town. So I was doing a story in Syria during Don't the Don't mention the town. Don't mention no. the town. No. But I, so I, I met up with one of the blokes. Um, I, I was, this was 2017. And I was over there. The The only way I could get in was uh, I, I went over on the government side, the uh, Assad side. Um, so I applied through Beijing. I was living in Chongqing at the time, uh, southwest China. And I applied through the Syrian embassy in Beijing. The, I'm sure the only reason I was able to get a press pass is because they thought I was Chinese. And I was able to, to go through <laughs> when I arrived. So I arrived in Lebanon, in Beirut got a taxi from Beirut to Damascus. When I arrived in Damascus, they had no idea that I was coming. Like they, I was at the, the Ministry of Information. They were like, who are you? They had a quick look at my website, see who the hell I was. They had no idea I was actually coming over there. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I went to this one town and this is the front line between where the rebels were and where the, uh, the Assad, the, the government troops uh, were, were sort of uh, uh, bumping into each other quite a bit. So I, I, years, I were, a couple of years later, or a year later, I was uh, back in the UK chatting to one of the blokes about this who's still serving. And um, and we, I was talking about this town and how crazy it was and, and how interesting it was to see this sort of, uh, uh, this conflict. Obviously, the only other conflict I've been in is Afghan. So it's interesting to see the, the comparisons between these two conflicts. And I started talking about this town and, and a couple of the, the points in this town, like the gymnasium, and there was this watchtower that I was able to go up and have a little look through. And he piped up and was like, no, I was in the same place at the same time, but on the other side of the front line with the rebels. <laughs> so oh I my God. must have been looking at each other over this front line, just on completely different sides. It was uh, crazy. Yeah, strange pretty strange story yeah tip of the hat to him that shall not be named yeah he he shall not be named absolutely what um talking talking about the contrast then between not contrast if there was a contrast between afghan and syria mate you you experienced afghan as a as a sniper soldier paratrooper and you experienced syria as a journalist talk to me goose um it was a lot more fun uh, Syria than than Afghan, that's for sure. Not as many people uh, shooting at you, which is nice. Um, no, Syria. I mean, it was it was just it was interesting because obviously in the army, one big thing about being in the army is you don't really chat unless you're like yourself, a, a sergeant, or unless you're a senior rank. You don't necessarily chat with the locals. There's there's no reason for you to go and sit down, have a cup of tea, and and talk about issues they might be having. I, I never had that experience in three para. Whereas the only thing I was doing in Syria with, was talking about the issues the people there were having, the problems they have with their, uh, their leader, Assad, or the, the, how they view the rebels, uh, how they live their day-to-day. And that was really my major focus, just documenting uh, their day-to-day. So I was in uh, a city called Homs at, at one point, which was severely hit. Like, it was, it's just being decimated. And this is... A city that has some of the, I believe, one of the the wonders of the world, this marketplace that has just been completely destroyed or had one of these uh, wonders of the world in there. The rich history of Syria is phenomenal. Um, I mean, it's and it was just completely destroyed. And this one city, Homs, 
I'd be going out meeting with people. The fighting had since left. It was further north towards Aleppo. And people were starting to return to their homes and see the, the, the place that they left before, during or before the conflict. And then that sort of shock when they arrived back to see their beautiful apartment or beautiful home completely destroyed. And they'd be going through the rebel to, to get their bits and pieces out and being able to speak to them, being able to talk to them about how they feel about being a civilian stuck in this conflict. I mean, it was just fascinating. I mean, it was it was so um, interesting. I mean, it was it really sort of gave you a different point of view on on what conflict's like for the people that that are stuck in in between them. Mm. What did were you there for any of the um, in the country for when any of the the chemical attacks happened, the, the notable chemical attacks? So I, I I personally didn't see it. So one interesting uh, so the chemical attacks obviously I personally didn't see. Otherwise I might not be here to talk about it. One of the issues with that, and again this is completely one sided because I've not actually I didn't have a chance to to go across the front line and speak to to the opposition. But um, no, I didn't. Uh, and the people that are in support of the government, they adamantly refuse to believe that that would have happened. There's evidence to say otherwise, uh, as the, the UN and different organizations have pointed out. But it, it's, it's interesting. So as a, someone coming from an outside and as a journalist coming from the outside, it's interesting to see how defensive people can get so they're watching the same news you and i are they're tuning into the bbc they're tuning into cnn they're seeing uh, essentially that the imagery and the pictures of people suffering from chemical burns or suffocating or, or they're seeing all the same imagery we see but somehow they they, they justify it. They say, "Well, no, this isn't. This isn't sad. This is the rebels. They're doing this for propaganda. Like they're they're gassing their own people. Um, they're they're doing this themselves." And it was that was an interesting thing as well to see that sort of justification, regardless of what happens. Any negative press would be propaganda. Any positive is is news, which I found fascinating. Well, the thing is, with a, an environment like Syria, where you've got what appears to be happening on the surface and what what is happening behind behind the scenes, uh, uh, and what like I mean, you, you know, um, through that mutual friend you mentioned earlier, um, you know, we are aware of things that were happening at, behind, that that happened there behind the scenes. That that fucking hell, man, crazy, crazy, crazy yeah. stuff. I think if ever hit the news, mate, he'd be like, I'm, he just I. It makes the hairs on the back of my 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 arms stand up now. But the point, it's like the when it's such a complex scenario, there nothing is beyond the realms of possibility. It's entirely plausible to me that um, one group would would um, attack themselves to make it out of propaganda. There are scenarios I can imagine where that would be beneficial to them. Um, not taking out their own troops, not taking out their own fighters, but taking out a random neutral village somewhere. I can entirely see how it would be beneficial to them. Um, I mean, if you were just taking it at face value, if you if you spoke to some of the people and you just believe everything they said, um, yeah, I, I think so. I don't know. I think there are organisations like the UN, for example, that do, and independent intelligence services in, in different governments around the world, 
who do say that the Syrian government did intentionally gas their own citizens. So, yeah, I do, I do get your point. And, I mean, people do some pretty gruesome things in, in extreme circumstances. And it's not it's not that gruesome extreme for them though. It's 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 a matter of perspective and 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 it's all relative, right? I mean, we look at that and go, "What you gas your own people?" But I tell you what, if you grew up in the Middle East, yeah, or you grew up as a politician in the Middle East, or Joe Public in the Middle East, or as a military leader in the or a member of the military to rise to a military leader in the Middle East, I guarantee you, things that we would consider refined were. Things that we can be fine over there are not fine over here. You know, like ga- like gassing your own people, for example, because it's they 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 just it's a different culture. They just you can you can they can be more extreme because that's just the way they are. Mate, did did you ever come across the white helmets while you're out there? Oh no, because they're they're obviously <clears throat> they're <laughs> the government see the white helmets as again a propaganda piece for the West. So they're heavily funded by the the UK and the Americans, I believe, but definitely by the UK. Uh, the White the leader's helmets. dead, though, isn't he? I I'm not sure. I haven't really been following the White Helmets. Uh, I have to admit, but they He's they dead, don't though. like them. They they see them as uh, combatants in that war. They don't see the White Helmets as medical staff whatsoever. And no. they've got all the again. They've got all this this photos and videos of guys with the White Helmets picking up a rifle and joining in the fight, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a very, <clears throat> even before I went, to, I mean, Syria was a mad, confusing place. I mean, it was just insane. There are so many different factions, so many different sides. One of the main arguments that the pro-government supporters were making, and I kind of see it, is that <clears throat> these rebel groups, there were so many of them, and some of them were pretty conservative with their views on religion. For example, chucking homosexuals off the roofs of buildings, for example, or uh, women should have to cover up in public. So one of the the places I went, and again, I was being led around by pro-government people, so I was only seeing what they kind of wanted me to see. But one of the areas I I went to was a a female basketball team um, and and saw them play, and they were wearing shorts and T-shirts, and there was exposed skin. They were saying, look, if the the rebels over the other side, and and again, this is just what they were saying, there's no foundation on this, some evidence, I suppose, but if the rebels win, this is over. There is no more female basketball. Uh, There is no more uh, women being out in public by themselves. I mean, they they want these much, and again, there's many, many different groups, but some of these groups, they were saying, want much more conservative religious views uh, imposed uh, on society. Um, so it was interesting. I mean, one issue, I, I mean, I, it was the most stressful trip, the most stressful story I've ever done. I was over there for two weeks. Five days out of those two weeks, I was under house arrest and had my cameras confiscated off me. I was interviewing this uh, old chap and one of the so one of the, the female basketball players' fathers was kidnapped and we think it's it's probably government uh, government that the Syrian government that did this was kidnapped and tortured because they believed he knew something about a, a certain individual who they were interested in who was affiliated with a rebel group. I mean, I was halfway through this interview with this nice old man. He's in his sixties, seventies, and I had five or six Syrian armed uh, soldiers crashed through the, the door and we were in their apartment. I was with my translator, 
the family were all having a lovely little time, drinking a bit of tea, chatting about what happened, getting some pictures. We had the uh, Syrian army come in through the door, stop everything. I was dragged off into one room. The family were dragged off into another. My translator was desperately trying to sort the situation out. They were like, right, <clears throat> they were like, right, we want his cameras. We want his cameras. So I was like, no, you're not having my cameras. It was just a, a nightmare. Um, at the end of the day, I was at the behest of the Syrian government, so gave up the cameras, gave up my memory cards, and was put in my hotel uh, for five days, waiting to to go out and, and continue the work. And it was, I can't tell you how stressful that was, being in Syria, wanting to get these stories done, and being confined to an apartment or the, the local cafe. And that was it. That was five days out of the two weeks I was there. It was a, a really difficult uh a really difficult place to work. Do you not feel naked being in those situations without without a weapon, mate? After having been in, like serving, I, I was really... thinking that situation there and thinking, "Oh my god, you got no weapon, you got nothing." <laughs> <laughs> well, not really. And okay, so I know, and this is probably my own ignorance playing into this, um, but there is some protections you have as a reporter. I'm not a combatant. I'm, I'm not taking sides. I'm not part of this. And I mean. The combatants kind of know you're not a threat. The only threat you are is if you take the wrong picture of them and then they get a slight, uh, they get slightly defensive. But generally speaking, there is a respect. And even in Syria, there is a, a respect, or I saw a respect on that side, a certain amount of respect anyway, for uh, journalists working in, in that scenario. China, however, when I lived in China, a different story. Uh, Ooh, there was let, one... me gra- let me let me grab a beer. I'm gonna go on to yeah. that. Two, give me two seconds. Yeah. Sorry, mate. That's all right. No worries. Getting the Guinness down, yeah. Yeah, mate, tell me about China. Do you know what I love? Yeah. Do you know what, mate, is uh, what's mega about what, what, you're, what you do now is that uh, there's so much to be said, I think, for no, there's so much value in anyone that goes into any role who's come out of the military and especially has served in operations, right? Or, um, especially in operations that have been kinetic activity and they've been involved with because and you've travelled, is because, man, it just gives you that openness, that perspective on things. You're not looking at, you know, you're not a journalist in Syria or in Venezuela or in China who, you know, grew up in Yorkshire, maybe got to London a couple of times, went to university in Northampton, and then all yeah. of a sudden you've, you've got this whole other, you've, you've experienced a whole range of different cultures and the whole spectrum of human emotion across all the different cultures and types of people. And he, he just makes a, just makes for, mate, well, we're doing a podcast, right? Well, it's I'm, interesting you say I'm enjoy, that. I'm, I'm, enjoy, I'm enjoying listening to you. <laughs> I, I don't think I could have done what I've, I mean, particularly Syria or, or, or those sort of Venezuela. I, it wouldn't have been safe, I don't think, without the experience that I had in the army. You, you, because you, you, you're trained from basic training to know when a situation is getting bad, when, when you should avoid it how to talk to people. I mean, that's one of the things that the army really sort of put across, how you, how you speak to someone that might be hostile. It's, it's all things that oh, I, I was able that, yeah. to, to develop through. 
And by the way, I mean, it's usually the blokes. You go on the piss, someone gets hostile on the piss. You need to be able to diffuse the situation. And it's, also, it's not always that, but an anecdotal uh, instance of it. I mean, it's all uh, without the army. And I, I say this quite a bit without uh, being in the parachute regiment. I, I don't think I would have grown up. As you say, you can't just leave uni and go into into the world. I mean, it doesn't university and school and general life doesn't really teach you. It didn't teach me how to survive. I think the army was really gave that foundation of how the world really works. Going to Kenya, for example, on exercise or Afghan or seeing something different than, as you say, growing up in Yorkshire, going down to London, um, if that's the extent. Talk about China. So I, uh, I was working, I, it wasn't really a, a big story I wanted to work on. I was just more interested in looking into orphanages. There'd been stories from the 90s about the state of orphanages in China, where they were basically chaining up the children to a bed and they were living in these awful conditions. And I, it wasn't something I was really pursuing, but I mentioned to my translator in China that it might be an interesting avenue to go down. Like I'd be interested in just chatting to one of the the um orphanages and, and seeing what happens so why sorry why was the initial trip what did you go out there for in the first place so i went i i, I left the army and went to university and got my degree i realized that journalism and photojournalism is hugely competitive i need to do something that's going to set me apart uh, i my best friend's brother lived in chongqing and me and my best mate just the thought well you know we both want to get out there's i don't think there's many stories coming out of china so china just seemed and particularly southwest china just seems like a an interesting place to go and it was cheap out there the the, the rent the, the the cost of living is great rent's cheap uh and it's just a nice sort of life when i did arrive i ended up staying there for four years so i was over there uh, predominantly working on documentary stories photojournalistic stories and so um, I, I spoke to, to my translator and she contacted a couple of orphanages just like off the back. She did a bit of research and, and found these orphanages quite locally. Anyway, un, unbeknown to me, um, a day after she made these initial calls, she gets called from the Chinese secret police to go to a hotel, the Marriott, in the centre of Chongqing to meet with them and to find out why she was contacting these orphanages. Like, what possible reason could she have to be speaking to orphanages in, in, in uh, Chongqing and Sichuan? So I, she didn't tell me any of this. So she was quite concerned because there are a lot of stories, as I'm sure you know, of people going to hotel lobbies and disappearing. I mean, this was some, a real concern. So she went there by herself to go and meet with the, the police. And God knows why she went by herself. Why didn't she say anything? Like, why didn't she just say, look, you know, give me a call. If I, you don't hear from me, I mean, there's something worrying going on. But she just sort of took this upon herself, went to, to meet up with this, these police. And they were asking, they just wanted to know everything about me. Like, why I was here, what I was doing, why was she working with me? Like, what, what was her agenda when it came to the, the CCP, like the communist, uh, Chinese Communist Party? Um I think that was probably the closest I've, I've come to being arrested in China. <laughs> just, just researching. And I, I've been documenting for years in China with no issues whatsoever. 
but just that one hotspot, the orphanages, really set off alarms and and why uh, why essentially nothing happened. Thank goodness. Well, they've got so there were huge. Uh, there was huge, like I say in the nineties, there was this huge thing about the state of, of orphanages in China across. I want to say across China, but it was uh, one or two. There was a, an American couple that were traveling through China and amateur documentary makers and recorded these awful conditions of these young children. And China's just very sensitive about these issues. It's like going to uh, Xinjiang and talking to the Uyghur population up there. So Xinjiang is the north, as you, I'm sure, again, you know, northwestern province, which is predominantly a Muslim population, and they don't consider themselves Chinese. So what the Chinese are doing is that... They well, don't. They don't. No, no. So they oh. um, they don't re- they don't um, relate to the cu- Chinese culture. They're Islamic, so they so they want to grow beards. They want to to wear the traditional Islamic and and traditional Muslim uh, attire, and they want to follow the Quran. The Chinese don't like this, and they don't particularly enjoy religion uh, being an atheist country. So there are huge crackdowns on how long men are allowed to grow their beards, for example. There are re-education camps, which have been hitting the headlines a lot uh, over the last couple of years, uh, where these Uyghur, these Uyghur men and women are picked up off the street just for having a long beard and sent to a camp. Just They disappear from their family. Friends and family don't know where they are. They'll be sent to this re-education camp where they're essentially taught why they should love the Communist Party of China. Um, so that's a that's a hotspot. And if I wanted to, so just talking of hotspots, if I wanted to go and work up there, I'd probably have been kicked out of China long ago. So it's just about picking and choosing what stories you think are uh, are the ones to yeah. uh, to sacrifice yourself on uh, when I lived down I've, there. Because um, I wanted to live there, and I wanted to get stories done, and I wanted the good stories, but I didn't want to be ejected. So that's the issue. If I worked for a bigger organisation like the New York Times, I think it would have been worth the risk. But I was freelancing, yeah. so it was difficult. I'd, I'd like to say that China have got it right by not allowing religion. They've got it right on many things. I don't know if not <laughs> allowing religion is... They allow religion, but they're just very... I, I mean, I, I suppose they're... they're um, I'm not a religious expert, so I just want to have that disclaimer out there straight away. I think they're worried more about uh, the Islamic religion right now because it does have a lot of issues around uh, around the world and it's tied with international organizations that could do harm to the cohesion of China as a country. Mm. They, the Chinese have just generally, they just want a, the message they put out is they just want a, a quiet life. Regardless of what you do, do it in the, the quiet of your own home. Don't spread these views to anyone else, et cetera, et cetera. And I suppose men wearing big beards in Xinjiang is is something that's stirring up trouble. But again, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, be, well, yeah, well, yeah, not allowing a beard is a bit extreme, but no, that is interesting, mate. I didn't I know, know that the north is Islamic. Yeah, uh, north east Xinjiang, uh, the, the the province of Xinjiang. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's tons of different. One of the the areas, one of the best experiences of China was going down to the largest Tibetan nunnery. Uh, on the planet, a place called Yajenga, which was in Sichuan province on the border of Tibet, essentially, very close to Tibet. And that was a three-day grueling ride, the train from Chongqing to Chengdu, 
it was a, a mixture of buses, pickup trucks, and whatever else I could find to get me into the mountains to go and uh, stay at this monastery for, for seven days. And it was just incredible. Uh, since they've, they've uh, essentially taken it down, they've, they've demolished a lot of it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was just, and you can see all this on, the, on my website uh, as well. Al Jazeera story I did for that. China's uh, China's mate, one of the places the top the, on my list of places to go that is possible to go to. You know, I recommend it. To it's beautiful. China, mate, China, yeah. and then Japan, Japan. You know, there is a there is a growing uh, community of scientists who are, are of the belief that uh, people of Chinese descent are an entirely different race to as Homo sapiens. They're not Homo sapiens. The Chinese have this view that um, the rest of the world come from monkeys. They come from fish. I don't know if that's part of the, the view. They no, I did fish. not know that. Explain, elaborate on that for me. Really? That's essentially all I know about it because I just, I didn't, re- I thought it was just a, the Chinese are, are a little, a little racist. In a place in, um, at near Hong Kong, uh, Guangzhou, there's, well, not just that, there was an advert on TV. Uh, a uh, an advert to, to for detergent to clean your clothes to make your whites white. So their idea was for this advert is you'll have this uh, Chinese woman and her boyfriend is from Africa, a black guy. He's a, he had an African accent. She didn't like the way he looked, so she chucks him in the washing machine, puts him one of the detergents, and then washes him. He comes out a Chinese man. That was a legitimate <laughs> advert on television. And no one about an island. It was just like, yeah, yeah, no, that's China. Obviously, the foreigners thought it was a little strange. Uh, but yeah, that's just that's just China. Uh, they're a very insular country and don't see it as, as racist. Because obviously, that African man was a little dirty and needed to be cleaned, uh, apparently. It's insane. Yeah, man. It's insane. Yeah. I've, again, oh, did that, did, that, did that shift then? A little bit, yeah. Popped up a little bit. Right. Then, uh, but then... They wouldn't. It, it depends what you look at, mate. I gotta be careful here. It depends how you're looking at it, right? You can see it as the African man was dirty, so needed to be cleaned, or you can see it as just a uh, I've just turned one something from one colour into another with this amazing product. Oh, and it happens to be a black dude. <laughs> mate, brilliant. I don't. Fucking regardless brilliant. of how you look at it, it's hugely racist. I mean, it's it, yeah. I don't know. I don't think it's. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's an advert you'd see anywhere apart from China. Yeah, you know what no, I mean. Yeah. No, I no, you're it right. Would be a little right. bit, uh, a little bit risky to, to have it you, anywhere you're else. You're right, but what's what's the definition of racism? How would you define? How would you how you define? Yeah, I think in this racism? specific circumstance, viewing black people as dirty, <laughs> I think that would be racist. Oh yeah. All right. Yeah. I wasn't looking. I wasn't. It's the yeah, whole yeah. washing of the. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah I do yeah. see your point though. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, if you literally just want to turn skin from black to white, I see see your point. I don't. I, I think it was a badly thought out advert, but it was interesting to to see. No, no, there was this one place in. If you go to Chongqing, there's this one place uh, called Foreigner Street, and it's the, a theme park, an amusement park, but it's called Foreigner Street because they've set up all the different countries around the world into this amusement park. And, oh, my God, the the African <laughs> section of this is awful. Uh, you'll go to just like, how? 
Only China, only China can do that. Now, I, I, again, just claim that Chinese are not racist. I, I, they're some you, of the nicest people I've ever met. Minutes, but they, there are a few little things like foreign you said, and this you said, You said five minutes ago, China are pretty racist. <laughs> <laughs> I think generally, I think maybe, yeah. But no, generally speaking, individual Chinese are some of the nicest people I've ever met. But yeah. It's just because it's insular. So when I first arrived in Chongqing, the elder generation, I was sitting in the middle of this in Yangjiaping, which is the area I lived. It's a suburb of, or a, a district of Chongqing. I was just sitting there having a coffee, really hot, sunny day, just enjoying the, the sunshine. And I, the longer I was there, the more of a crowd would gather around me. And it was just a stare. It was just st- that people were just staring at me because obviously I wasn't from that place. And I try and smile and wave. And this is the older, particularly older generation. And they just don't know what to do. They'll just sit, stand there staring at you. Uh, and this was a fair few years ago, albeit. But uh, it was just... I that, a... mate. When, when, when there was in Uganda, uh, you didn't go... I think you're out. You're out, but then. Went to Uganda, um, jungle training out there. And I'd never experienced it before, similar to your experience there. And we, we got 48, 48 hours off. Out the jungle in the local town called Ginger, funny enough, J I N J A, cracking place. <laughs> Your hometown. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're out the piss in this bar, mate. And I mean, it's, it's fucking, it's the people out there, they're like blacker than an Ethiopian coal miner. Like it is proper Africa, mate. And we're in this bar, and me, I can't, maybe Matt Hasty, a couple of other people, I can't remember who was with me. And we sat down. We went to get the pool table, obviously. And we already bought a beer. We walked in from the, from the thing. And sat there and, and people were just looking at us, mate. And, but beyond that, they would... They, they, it was all... It was most, I think it was mostly guys in there. And they would come over. And I remember one coming over and sitting next to me. Like, it was me and Matt. And there's like one little space. And he came and sat down next to me as if he was part of the group. That's like, nice. It, yeah, but it's like, <laughs> all right. But it was, it was, it was just... He was fascinated. Yeah. He was fascinated. And and it's like, looked at him and he said, uh, and I finished my beer. It was a, you know, he's like, it's a bit, it's, I was thinking, it's a bit awkward, but I was thinking it's not that awkward because he sat next to me and everyone seems fine, everyone else in the bar, it's like normal. Yeah. And um, and uh, he said, do you want, he said, do you want another beer? I can't remember how he said it to me because um, most of them out there spoke English. But uh, I was like, um, oh, okay. And he, he, he went to the bar and I thought, I'm going to get robbed now. He went to the bar, and uh, I gave him money to go to the bar, right? So he went to the bar to get my beer, which is only five yards away. Comes back, mate, gives me the beer, gives me the exact change. I was like, fucking hell. Okay. But I didn't know this guy. But it's that cultural, whoa. He's looking at me going, what are you? And why is your skin like that? <laughs> well, so that's, like that? that's a really interesting point. It's cultural. So I often think comparisons, obviously, with the UK and, and places I've been, China, Venezuela, uh, Syria, wherever, and are British people as nice to strangers as other cultures? I genuinely don't think they are. I don't think if you're in a pub in the UK and I decided to come and sit right next to you and we didn't know each other, I don't think the reaction would have been the same. Or not just you, but anybody. It'd be like, who the hell are you, mate? Get get out of here. Some some foreign person comes to sit right next to you in the pub. No, 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 but. I was in his country. Exactly. Okay, yeah, I suppose so. But the same, uh, yeah, I suppose so. 
But I don't think we would do that. It depends where, British it depends guy where though. Yeah. Depends where you are. I suppose what I'm trying to say is the the kindness of strangers in all of the places I've been, and in the UK, I suppose, but predominantly abroad, it just seems to be, uh, it just seems to be mind-blowing. I mean, uh, uh, someone from uh, arriving in a country, for example, uh, a friend of mine in China, just arrived in China, obviously doesn't speak any Mandarin, was trying to find a way around. A student who spoke decent enough English was at the airport waiting for a grandmother. Somehow met up uh, with my friend, um, started chatting, never met each other before. Uh, my friend was saying, oh, she's really worried. I don't know how to get into the city. don't know where my apartment is. Everything's in Chinese. This, this, this student took her from the airport an hour and a half by train away into the, the place where she needed to go, took her up to her front door. That was it. Like, didn't want anything in return for it, just wanted to be friendly. I don't where think did, that would where did you? Where did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Uh, all over. I was, so I was born, I'm an army brat. So I was born in Colchester. Okay. Okay. That's fine. All right. So that's fine. So I, I, I'm, I am going to agree with you, but disagree with you. So the, your experience of how friendly we are as a nation is all entirely dependent on your experience of growing up. That, yeah, that, that's what you've, what you've experienced. My experience, mate, I spent, uh, I spent, I grew up in, I grew up in like a, uh, well, initially on a farm for like 10 fucking, tw- uh, however long I can't remember. Um, and then like into a, a village in the valleys of South Wales. And then in, as I got older, joined up and all that. It was Colchester, more experience in London and more populated areas. My opinion on it is this. Uh, my opinion on it, well, my, my marker for like, oh, the friendliness of one town compared to the next or one area compared to the next was always do people say hello to you in the street? Whether yeah. you know them or not, and where I grew up, mate, you walk down the street, regardless of your skin colour, regardless of your gender, regardless of whether I know you or not, or whether the person walking towards me or not, just passing. All right, all right, hello, hello, shabai, shabai. That that's what it's just that this is what you do. You know, it may even develop into the shortest conversation ever. You go, you might get past hello, 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 yo, good day, yeah, yeah, no bad. Let's go to the shop, you know. That's what it's like, right? Yeah. Go to London, it ain't happening. You've got a culture that's happening. What's, what's interesting now with COVID-19 is that is happening at the moment, but that's a different, different topic. But I think the point I'm making is the higher, the most highly de- populated, dense areas of people are less friendly with each other. It's just the way it is. You're fucking passing people all the time. It's not an unusual thing. It's like you constantly, whatever. Also, resources are plentiful. Everything you need is there. You can get it within fucking a couple of hundred meters of wherever you live. Fucking guaranteed, guaranteed. Anything you need, anything you need. As you get further away from the populated areas, you get into, into the sticks, the rural areas. Seeing people becomes rarer. So you might not see like two hundred people in a day. You may yeah. see fucking two or three people in a day, right? And then also, resources are not as plentiful. Things that you need are not as plentiful, and there's not an immediate demand. So where you would need assistance in London, I've run out of fuel, or where is the nearest cash point, or can you give me 20p? Can I need 20p to fucking go in the public toilets? Mate, yeah. no one's going to give 20p. Not going to get it. No one's going to go, oh, I'll run into the local, uh, I'll, I'll jump in my car, I'll take it to the, the garage down the road, the petrol garage, and you can fill it there or whatever. You go, the further you get into the rural areas, those things are more um, common to be like, have a problem and not have an immediate solution to it. So it's hard to get the solution. And would people be more friendly anyway? 
um, because there's less, there's also less risk and less threat. There's less crime and all that in those areas. And people have less inhibitions about talking and engaging with strangers. You're more likely to get the interaction. More likely yeah. to get there. I'll drive you. I've known things like that. Fucking drive me fucking miles. You know, or um, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, have to, I have to admit, I've met, maybe it's just the Welsh are a lot nicer people. No, mate, you've got to. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah but yeah. you go to North Yorkshire, you go to anywhere yeah. like that. They're gonna. You, there is a marked difference between walking to a pub in well Yorkshire, walking to a pub in fucking Inverness, you know, yeah. or like uh, a, a, in in some remote valley in Wales to walk in, into a pub in Colchester. There we go. Complete yeah. difference. Complete difference. You can go. You you could go in there. I'd argue that you. When people hear a foreign accent in, a, in those rural areas and those places that aren't fucking com, com, uh, constantly bombarded by people and life and busyness and everything else in the city, you're going to you hear a foreign accent. They're more like they're going to speak to you. You're going to have the yeah, conversation. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, because yeah. because you Just you are completely different. You're now. completely different. What's this? What is this yeah. thing? You know, oh my God, he's not from he's not from round he's not from round he's East not parts. From these parts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. Yeah, I know. I have to put into proof in the pudding. I, I haven't had that experience. I suppose maybe I need to hang out in, in more rural UK. Um, or just or just not be an asshole, and then people will engage you better. There's that. There's that. Yes, I've got to stop being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, where, what's yeah. uh, since you left? What what's been your most dangerous situation you've been in? Apart, is it was it the that that in China with the secret police? Have oh, you, has your life um, been at, has your life been at risk properly? Like, oh my not, god, not professionally. No, I think um, the only time my life was at risk was uh, getting drunk on the Yangtze River, uh, and that was where. We decided so. There's uh, no, it wasn't. It's the Jialing which goes onto the Yangtze. So the the issue was. Me and my mates, two of my mates, decided to have a few baijos, uh, which is the rice wine, a bit like uh, soju or the Japanese version. Uh, it eludes me now. But baijo is a Chinese sake, rice sake. wine. Sake. sake. So a bit like those, just a more disgusting. I mean, baijo is foul. You need a, you need to have a chase of Diet Coke or Coca-Cola or whatever just to take the taste out of your mouth. But it gets you drunk really quickly, and it's so cheap. So me and a couple of mates decided to get into a blow-up boat on the Jialing River. Um, hopped in this boat, having a little whale of a time, beautiful sunshine, just drifting down this river with all these oil tankers coming past. We decide in our drunken haze that we're getting mighty close to the Yangtze River, which is a pretty fast-flowing river and will probably take us out to sea. So we don't want that. So we decide to try and pull off onto the banks of the river completely misjudged it now along the side of the jialing particularly as you get into center chongqing are these great big tankers with iso containers on them and their anchor chain is i mean it's, it's bigger than my body just one part of that chain is huge we misjudge it and we wrap our blow-up boat our blow-up dinghy around this anchor chain so it sort of bends in half the, the river is flowing we obviously all fall off <laughs> And we get sucked <laughs> underneath uh, one of these, it's essentially, for lack of a better word, sucked underneath the oil tanker. Thank God it wasn't switched on. It was it was anchored up. But we are bumping all along the bottom of this. And it's a good 
oh 200 my God. meters, 300 meters, just bouncing along the bottom of this. Man, <laughs> that's mental. But it was absolutely mental. The funniest part of this, though, was coming up. And you know those moments that are just so, you think you're going to die. Your, your life is flashing before your eyes. So underneath this boat, my life was flashing before my eyes. When you realize you're not going to die, it's the most hilarious thing on the planet. So there's us three bobbing along this river in pure hysterics. All of our, apart from our shorts, our clothes have been ripped off. We've lost shoes. We finally managed to get to the bank. There's a pub at the top of the hill. So we go into this, this bar, <laughs> but like soaking wet. All of us are just wearing shorts or part of a T-shirt, a flip-flop between all three of us. Uh, it's just, it's just that, that of all the things I've done was firstly the most stupid and secondly, the, the most dangerous. Um, but yeah, that was the only time I've really had a, oh my God, my, my life is going to end moment. But that was, that was <laughs> fucking brilliant. Fucking <laughs> it's just brilliant. popping up and, and looking around, seeing the other blokes just cracking up. That sort of gets you going as well. But no, that was really the most uh, dangerous. I mean, there was one, one instance in Syria, actually in Damascus. Uh, there was one hold uh, in Damascus that, um, it, no, it wasn't really dangerous. I mean, I, I was up a minaret at one of the mosques just getting pictures of the uh, sunset over Damascus and uh, a part of the city was being shelled, but it wasn't really that close. Um, so I, I don't I don't think that was particularly dangerous. God, was, mate, you... Well, yeah, you wouldn't even if you need to think about Afghan more. To, you wouldn't even yeah, mention that. in Afghan, yeah. But the thing is, in comparison to Afghan, everything's pretty safe. Yeah, no, I mean Afghan of, of, of my entire life, Afghan, yeah, was the most dangerous. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Every day in Afghan was a was a nause. We'll. Uh... We, we need to start wrapping it up, mate. I, man, I'm sure Luke or Steve sent me a message recently and they said, make, probably Steve, he's a fucking wind-up merchant, and said, make sure you mention it. it might be Luke. Make sure you mention this on the podcast. And it, oh, man, I can't remember what it was. I'm, I'm recording on the phone, so I can't look on the phone. So you've got away <laughs> with it this time. You've got away with it this time. But, um, mate, where can, uh, how can people follow what you're doing? Uh, where do you want to direct people? And anything you, any plugs you want to make, do it now. Yeah, I mean, so my personal website's just my name, douglashook.com. Um, have a look. There's links to Instagram and, and Twitter on there. Um, uh, I've, I've got to mention, obviously, I'm working as a, a staff uh, staffer at masslife.com, uh, which is Massachusetts news. So uh, UK or anyone outside Massachusetts might be interested in what's happening here. Uh, it's a particularly interesting state. So there's there's that to look at as well. Uh, Hugh, cheers. Thanks for, for having me on. We've, it's been a long time coming. and I'm glad that you uh, have me on your podcast. Uh, and thank you again for Mate, been a fucking pleasure. Um, yeah. yeah, we'll do it again, get you in the studio, though, either in Massachusetts or in uh, the UK. Well, get yourself over. So I'm, I'm getting contact, as we said earlier, with some uh, American vets, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm keeping my eyes peeled for, for another subject for an interview. Yeah, sweet. Mate, been a fucking Thanks. pleasure, buddy. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Hugh, and, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a shout next time I'm back in the UK. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can get these podcasts before anyone else. Get them early 
and other podcasts that I produce, other series that I produce. You can get them early by becoming a supporter of mine on patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. You get access to all the podcasts early. I'm, I'm doing a new series called the Leading Mind series. That entire series is going to be released to my Patreon supporters a month ahead of everyone else. Um, yeah, so get on the HK, uh, patreon.com forward slash HK podcast. Support me there. You also get some goodies when you sign up. And uh, it's worth it. And I like, I like it. It's nice. I get a good warm, fuzzy feeling when people, people sign up. It's like an extra demonstration of... Of uh, I don't know what the word is. I just I just like it. It's nice to know people appreciate what I'm doing. I'm sure you do. I'm I'm not saying you have to sign up to Patreon.com. <laughs> it would be nice if you did. Um, yeah, that's it. Thank you for the sponsors. Westway Nissan, WestwayNissan.co.uk. Up to twenty percent off when you if you're ex-military or serving when you buy a new or used vehicle from them. Uh, don't forget, they've got private and commercial type vehicles and they are doing a shared load for the COVID-19 response at the moment. So get on and visit them, westwaynissan.co.uk and they're on social media, westwaynissan, funny enough. Thanks guys. Also, support sponsoring the podcast today, a reminder was Rugby for Heroes, the not-for-profit organisation formed in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was a paratrooper sadly killed in Afghanistan and they raise money for military charities. They raise over £110,000. So, to keep up to date on... To keep up to date... I should get your words out, you To keep up to date on when the uh, the events planned for 2020 will eventually be held, you need to follow them on social media and or get onto their website. On social media, they're at Rugby Number 4 Heroes, Rugby for Heroes. And uh, the website is rugbyforheroes.org. Thank you to all of those. Also, don't forget, reach out to the guest. Give Doug a follow. Um, he's a cool dude. I'm sure you. I'm sure that came across in the podcast when he was talking. He's an interesting cat. Uh, give him a follow on social media. He, he's definitely on Twitter. LinkedIn primarily for contact. Um, yeah, yeah. Until the next time. Out. <laughs>